Hello! Welcome to the Filmmaker's Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I am the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire. Uh, and today we have a conversation for you that I have been thinking about for weeks now. Uh, it is with the wonderful Sue Hugh, creator of the Apple TV Plus series Pachinko. Sue is an incredible writer and now the showrunner for a truly globe-spanning series. And she was willing to get into both the writing and the production challenges of creating a vast and ambitious epic that never is beholden to any of the periods that it's jumping between. She also really dug into her writing process, how she thinks about what a show is and what a show isn't. So all prospective TV writers should definitely give this conversation a listen. As a note, we do talk in sort of broad terms about episode seven of the show, which has yet to air as of this date. So if you would like to remain completely unspoiled, check out the time code in the episode description uh, for what to skip. But it, we're really only talking about it in the broadest sense in terms of why certain adaptation choices were made. So you shouldn't be uh, spoiled for the experience of watching that episode. And so without any further ado, we hope that you enjoy this episode of the Filmmaker's Toolkit podcast with Sue Hugh. I actually got a chance earlier today to talk with uh, Florian, the cinematographer for uh, One, Two, Three, and Seven. Oh, did you know Florian before or was it through this? It was through this, yeah. Um, and... I, so I, I kind of wanted to start with, because he uh, mentioned a few interesting things, and that Gordon Parks was an influence going into the series. I'd love to sort of hear, like, kind of what you were sort of playing with as you have this book on your desk and are starting to think about what the world of Pachinko is going to look like. Yeah, I love that you asked that question. I, was, I would never have expected that question. I think whenever you, for me, whenever I write, I write very visually. I look at influences. I look at music I listen to music I look at photographs and paintings and it doesn't necessarily have to do I separate research research is one part of the brain and inspiration is a second part of the brain and in trying to think about the visual language of pachinko I always start with how would 99% of the world make this film and you know you expect the grand vistas you expect uh, these epic uh, movements so then I thought, okay, that is how 99% of the people would make this show. Let's look at that 1%. Where's that space to say, let's do something a little bit different. And I don't believe in doing something different for the sake of doing something different. I think sure. that's just all over substance. But I do think that this is an opportunity, like whenever you're given a chance to make something novel, especially in this time of storytelling, why not challenge yourself and push yourself further? And when I, I've always been a huge Gordon Parks fan, first of all, his use of color is unparalleled, you know, I think. I think Gary Winogrand always gets a lot of credit. And even though I'm a Winogrand fan, I feel like Park just, it's not nostalgic, but it's hazy. You know, yeah. it feels of a distinct time and present. And I think his framing is also just incredible. It's very subtle, his framing, right? But it yeah. tells you so much about the people in the world and the place whether or not they're together or whether or not they're separate. And so with this show, I wanted this show to feel as lived in and as visceral as possible, meaning do not fetishize period. That was our mandate from the very beginning, but let's not 
fool the audience into thinking that we're in the present because we're clearly not in the present. So we had right. to create a completely original grammatical, a visual grammar for this. And Parks was definitely a linchpin of that. That's awesome. There's a like a 99% version of this show, right? Where there's something about the color grading or just the way that it's shot that's demarcates the period. And I so love that the show doesn't do that. It's just because the past is present at all times. I, I, I guess to, to back up a little bit, this is, this is perhaps an unfair question, um, but sort of what, what were sort of the challenges that you sort of expected going into adapting this? And were there any, was there anything that surprised you um, as you were going through the adaptation process? Yeah, I knew this was going to be a challenge in terms of period authenticity, right? So much of our work is done off photographic evidence or paint, you know, Western history is well covered in terms of research. But this time period, especially for the Zainichi community, no one thought they were important enough to record. So we have a huge swatch of history of this, these people's history that are missing. But it makes me way too nervous to invent things because then I think you compromise the fidelity of what these people live through. So stitching together through oral testimony, through whatever we can, photographic evidence, whatever little we can find and creating that world. That's what I was worried about initially as being one of the challenges of this show. What I realized is, you know, we had an incredible team, Mara, who ran our production design, and she just had built this incredible team of, of Koreans and Japanese and Americans and Canadians. And they really took on that job with just such brilliant deafness. The language component, the translation component was probably the biggest challenge. All the mm. way from script translation to translation on set to subtitle translation. I think I was totally naive about this. I did not realize what an enormous undertaking it was and an art form. I, I, I was curious about that sort of, I imagine that, you know, as the showrunner, you're involved at sort of every stage of it. But what was in terms of making sure that the meaning came across in different ways or, you know, those moments where... Korean and Japanese are kind of spliced in together in the same sentence? Like in, in what way was the translation difficult? One is, is the original intent being conveyed? Two, in the language that is spoken, does it have that same cadence? You know, I like to write dialogue with a certain type of cadence depending on character. That was something that was really hard for me to lose. Like I built these lines around this character speaks in sharp punctuations. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the translation is like, wait, what happened to the sharp punctuations? You realize that's not how it works in Japanese or that's not how it works in Korean. And you're just like, ah, so then how do I bring that sharpness back if it's not built into language? Also, I, with Korean, at least I understand. So what we were able to do is we did back translations, meaning the Korean version was recorded for me in audio so that I can listen and give notes. With Japanese, it was a complete leap of faith. I don't know Japanese. And that was, that was a challenge. Yeah. And in this show, especially, language defines our characters in so many ways, right? Because language is the story of colonialization. Yeah. So when the third generation loses their accent or when the third generation loses their language, that's also colonialization that continues even past, you know, when people leave countries. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking about episode three where they go to the house and, and she has the Korean rice and it just like... There's, there's such wonderful specificity that still somehow gets to 
what the experience of colonialization or, you know, of an immigrant story is broadly. And so I'm curious, are you, are you the kind of writer who wants to try and like hit those big themes or are you sort of nose down, let me tell the story of these characters and the themes that are there are going to present themselves? I think we have to do both. So I always start with theme. What am I trying to say? And I want to mm-hmm. be very razor sharp about what I want to say. And knowing that, drilling it down to how do we make these themes feel emotional, resonant? How do they feel visceral? How do they feel really just seamless in our story? No, that makes a ton of sense. I also wanted to ask sort of on a, on a slightly different topic. It's the, the show is going to prove that all television will be better if there's like an opening dance sequence in the opening credits. But I'm curious like where that choice came from and sort of what, how Live for Today came, came into the, uh, the series titles. So I wrote the dance, I wrote the title sequence into the script. Uh, and that was because I wanted everyone to know the show will have a title sequence. You know, we will not have a title card. I love title sequences. I think they really set up that cinematic experience. And it sort of, I mourn the title sequence, the death of the title sequence in the last 10, 20 years. And so it's very important to me to put that in the script. Originally, it was a different song in the script. It was a Rolling Stones song, Out of Time, which nice. was a fortune. So if the Rolling Stones <laughs> are listening, just let them know they missed out, right? But when we shot the title sequence, we did not know what the song was going to be. What I did is I played a different song for a different, each actor's got their own different song. And then it was so much fun those two days shooting the the title sequence. It it was very run and gun indie style in in a lot of ways. We had a skeletal crew and the actors, you know, they they just went with it. It was fun. I mean, I, I, obviously it, it tells in the, in the footage, but I'm, I'm, I'm also curious to sort of like, how do you think that title sequence sets up the series or sort of is, is like a nice uh, palate cleanser between the opening and the rest of the episode? What I've always loved about that title sequence from concept to execution to now reception is that that title sequence is our show's gift to the audience, which says, stay with us, trust us. This show isn't all bleak. The show is not just heavy. That exuberance and joy are just as important. And so it really feels important to reset that in every episode, that joy has to be part of this life. You know, the title sequence kind of shot with a, with a skeleton crew kind of running gun. I'm curious about sort of the scope of the production. Yeah. I mean, I like storytelling on a grand canvas, right? So for me... And that's what's been so rewarding about television in the last decade is that television can speak in the language that once only feature films did. So it was very important for all of us to say, we have superhero, we have all these superhero movies around us and that superheroes are given this huge lens. They're saving the world. And so they're told in this epic tone. I believe when you look at this family, they are not Rockefellers, they are not Kennedys. They are not people who normally would get these huge, vast stories. But we're saying in our show, they are just as important, right? They deserve that epic lens. So it would have been a disservice to the story if we said, because these people are poor and marginalized, that, they're, that the filmmaking had to be small and marginalized. No, we think what they did is heroic as well. Did you, I'm, I'm, now I'm curious, did you have any like superhero films in mind in terms of like, kind of emulating that sense of scale or were your references like nowhere near that? I I went back more towards older films. 
um, went back to the epics that I grew up with, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Bridges of River Kwai. The English Patient is a film that I always loved. Mm. Also these 80s miniseries that when I was a really small kid, they were on all the time and they were ambitious. Yeah. They, had, they had something to say. There were difficult subject matters, war and slavery. So I went back more to those influences rather than what's around today. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I remember having like the, the giant VHS box set of War and Remembrance and yep. I, Claudius and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, how, I'm just, how long did you have to, to work on, on the scripts before you had to roll into production? This, it's, it's a little wonky, this schedule, because of the pandemic. Sure. Uh, so I started this project four years ago, and we shot about a year and a half ago. So I was with the scripts for about a little over a year. I've heard a lot uh, talking to folks um, who had things interrupted by the pandemic that it was actually kind of a blessing in disguise that they got to spend more time with it. Um, or did, did you sort of feel like, come on, we're ready to go? A little bit of both. Uh, it was nice to be able to sit with it, as you said. At the same time, I think sometimes you overthink things when you sit with things too long, right? Mm -hmm. So in the end, it all worked out beautifully. But also a lot of doubt was there about whether we were ever going to shoot. The world was in a really bad place. Yeah. And then you shot in Korea and in Vancouver, correct? And we did plate shoots in Japan. Originally, it was supposed to be a three-country shoot, Korea, Japan, and Vancouver equally. Mm -hmm. But pandemic we weren't able to get in there and that that was a huge loss it was a huge loss not to have japan but at least we we're able to do these plate shoots remotely what was the experience like in korea because i know that 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 tv industry especially has a very different process it was so interesting and it was that was a huge learning curve it was but it was probably the most rewarding experience of this shoot to think of our team when we first went in and one thing that was very important to us that this should not be a show where I felt the Americans were coming in and telling the Korean community what to do. In fact, so much of what they do is better than what we do. But the, instead, the making of this show became part of a cross-national, a cross-cultural language. It mimicked our show in that way. And so there was a lot of just figuring out process. But by the end of Korea, this, this team really became a very close-knit family. And I have to say, I think being able to shoot half the show in my hometown was such an emotionally um, a just moving experience. I, I want to shoot everything in Korea now. <laughs> That's awesome. I'd love to ask about your collaboration with Koganata and uh, Justin Sean, because the show is, is very free and like the, the style doesn't have to be the same all depending on the episode. And I'm curious about uh, how those choices got made and, and sort of how you guys established a rapport all together. It was just such a privilege that they agreed to do this project and that they did the project as they did. There's very different directors. They're both brilliant in their own ways, but it was so exciting that if you look at what Kay did, you know, he did one, two, three, and seven, and Justin did the later episodes. And it was the perfect split because the first half of the show is about the homeland. It's about Korea. It's about stability in terms of like where your heart is. And the second half is going to that foreign land and being destabilized emotionally, being psychically destabilized as well. So when you look at the first half, it really fits Kay's formalism, his sense of composition, 
uh, just the elegance of movement. And then when you look at the second half, Justin's natural shooting style is to just get in there, that visceral nature, the camera being uh, part of the, almost like your heartbeat. They're very different filmmakers, but my God, it fits those episodes just perfectly. Yeah, and because it's it's there's one and then the other, by the time you get up close, it feels so earned yeah. because you've withheld that point. Did, did you have that sort of, sense of a visual break while you were writing or is that something that kind of emerged out of going into the production process the one thing so when we when when i was writing the season overview in the bible in terms of the tone and style the one thing that was very important to me is that the past any of the past that it doesn't feel like a masterpiece theater that it we make sure that these characters who live in the past don't feel like they're at an arm's throw from us they have to feel with us and there's lots of ways to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean you need a handheld camera to do that. Don't fetishize, period. And it was very important that in the present day, the 1989 storyline, 1989 Tokyo, that 1980s bubble, I've yeah. seen that presented so many times. And I really wanted to avoid all the tropes. You know, one thing is this show will never have that image of the Shibuya crossing, right? So that was more of a language. It wasn't about uh, let's have... Kay's episodes look like this and let's have Justin's episodes look like this. It was more an attitude. No, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and oh man, it's, you're right that that story has been told a lot. It hits different post 2008 recession for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're um, right. And you know, there's, there's something about like it being so specific to the period and still feeling very generalized and of the moment, which I think is really cool. It sounds like you 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 do think a lot about at least in terms of the the negative of like the kind of stories that you've seen before that you don't want to tell. Um, I'm think I'm curious, you know, to sort of dig into your to your process slightly more. Once you've sort of done that preliminary, okay, this is not how I want to do this. Uh, where do you go from there? Once I figure out what the show isn't, and it's very, I thought I think that's great that you picked up on that. Um, I think about, I have to figure the touchstone moments first before I plot. Plot, you know, plot is A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I don't mean to minimize it and make it seem like it's nothing, but you just plot. This happens to someone, cause and effect. But for, I always like to anchor first with touchstone moments. For example, um, on this show, I knew what the ending of the season, first season was. Mm -hmm. that, that was right away. I knew that. So because I knew that, that that was undeniable, you know where to work backwards from. I knew I wanted that departure episode. Yeah. I knew that I wanted that departure episode in 107. Uh, you really understand what you're building towards, if that makes sense. No, that makes a ton of sense. Because, you know, those things demand that certain things get set up. Yeah. Being gentle about spoilers, the departure episode is a departure from the source material is my understanding sort of what what guided that choice and uh gave the episode the form that it did hansu is probably one of the more intriguing but enigmatic characters from the book he's beloved but also undecipherable i think that works beautifully in a book when someone comes to life in cinematic form i think it's very difficult for a character to say undecipherable for a long time because then it just feels cardboard so in order to figure out who Hanzu was, we had to figure out where he came from, what his past experiences were like, 
just general obvious questions. When did he arrive in Japan? Where did his family go? You know, and in unpacking those questions, I came across the Kanto earthquake. I did not know about the Kanto earthquake before doing this project. And you read one about the devastation to the Japanese people, how the number of lives lost was staggering, yeah. what the country must have gone through. And then two, the violence on the Koreans afterward. And it was that light bulb moment of, ah, this is where Hansu was. He was here. And it really does explain so much. It almost feels inevitable that he is the character we have in our current storyline, having lived through that tremendously devastating experience. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, is the worst, but I think most plausible superhero origin story I've seen in a while. <laughs> He'll like to know that he's a superhero. That's yeah. a great way to yeah. Um, well, I mean, he strides onto the to the the fish market like a superhero in his white suit, of course. Yeah, he's, he's Batman. Um, did you have a? Did the novel provide sort of easy way into other characters, or were there were there there characters where you were also sort of having to kind of do that investigative discovery of trying to find out what clicked or or what made them who they were? A little bit of both. I mean, the novel is just this is the backbone, is the foundation. Um, but then you take that foundation, and especially when you're writing new scenes for a character, why are we writing this new scene? Who does this, char- who does this character become in this new scene? I always say scene work is so crucial in screenwriting. It's within every scene, where is that turn? It doesn't have to be a huge turn, but in every scene has to have that turn. And every time a character makes the turn, they're changing a little bit. So naturally, organically, our characters grow. That's a, yeah, that's a beautiful way to, to think about it. And, you know, comes back to the central message of the story is that every choice sort of compounds forward in ways that we don't even see or realize sometimes. I'm also uh, curious in terms of, was there sort of pressure... I feel like every adaptation has to has to deal with this to sort of represent certain things in the book or, you know, sort of the allure of getting to bring characters together who maybe didn't interact in the book. At what point do you sort of let the novel go or is it present, like kind of always? It's always present, but once we get into really breaking the story, the not, we push the novel away. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I've read the novel five times already. So it's already soaked into my DNA, you know, creative DNA already. But at this point, because it, the two have melded so much for me in my head, I don't, I can't tell you what's from the book and what's from, you know, what's from the room and what's from discussions with the actors. It's, that's what I love about filmmaking. It is this, it's this fluid process where you're co- you're constantly changing the story in every aspect of the of the process. It changes in the writing, it changes when you're shooting, and it changes in the edit. Uh, so at this point, I can't even tell you what's from what. You know, we spent as much time in post as we did shooting, right? Um, so, and this show, this show especially, was made in the edit room um, with all the because of the time jumps. And so, I really want to give so much credit to the entire post department. They're brilliant. I'm, I'm curious if there's a particular previous job you had either uh, 
TV or, or screenwriting that kind of felt like a, a grounding for this? Or did you feel like you were stretching a whole bunch of new muscles on this? The terror, without a doubt. Mm. It was all international production shot in Budapest and Croatia, enormous crew, um, period. In terms of just that experience of working with just cal- high caliber actors, that was very much, that was, yeah, it's very representative. I, you know, I clearly, I like these kind of shows. But that's interesting. Uh, it was useful in sort of logistical ways, or was it also useful in kind of tonal ways and sort of uh, storytelling ways? Both. For, you know, for a while, I said, I will never do another international production again after the terror, just because it's, it takes a toll. You know, you're away mm-hmm. for so long. And then, of course, I did Pachinko. And, you know, a part of me is like, I will never do an international production again. And yet I seem to be drawn to them. You know, this is going to sound very, a little bit cheesy in some ways, but when you do these big international productions and you bring together people from all across the world, languages and cultures and backgrounds, it makes the world feel smaller and more intimate, right? And that's sort of the goal of storytelling as well. So to be able to experience that within the filmmaking process feels really special. I feel like it makes me every day, you know, every day it feels like it's getting harder and harder to remain human in this world. But when you, when you meet people across the world and you just live through their experiences and something simple as a dinner conversation, I think that's pretty special. Yeah. I'm curious if you sort of are, are, chasing that sense of connection in your work as well in terms and also in terms of how you work. Absolutely. I, I like stories about real people. It, I find I'm never going to say never, but I, I don't see myself being drawn to a story about the future, a sci-fi epic. Um, I don't see myself drawn to superheroes. I think everyday people are pretty exceptional already. So that's what I'm drawn to. Interesting that uh, you say that. I, I saw that you are also trying to, you have an initiative to sort of get everyday people into screenwriting and into the, the film industry as well. Could you talk a little bit about the Thousand Mile Project? Yeah, the Thousand Miles Project, it's based on this Chinese proverb that the road to a thousand miles begins with one step. Um, I have this incredible opportunity to launch this incubator with UCP, the cable arm of Universal. And they're putting where their mouth, you know, there's been so much talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, but really like you have to do something about it in terms of giving people an opportunity that isn't just lip service. And so UCP is really putting where they're putting money where their mouth is. And it's, I hope we're able to give writers, storytellers, an opportunity to get paid to write who normally wouldn't have been in the system. You know, and it harkens back to when I was a kid and I wanted to make films and I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what, um, I didn't even know screenwriters and directors were different people. Hmm. Just information is so crucial to get you to that first step. So that's our goal is that we can first educate people who aren't in the system with how the film industry really, really works. Like, the thing that no one ever tells you. And two, choose uh, you know, a, a group of writers who we foster and also pay to write their stories. That's awesome. Do you think you would ever want to 
uh, combine roles and step behind the camera a little bit? Or are you sort of happy in kind of with the with your showrunner hat on? I think the showrunner is the best job in the world, I have to say. Um, you know, I do have interest in directing right now. I just can't imagine putting that on as well. And I like actually the checks and balances that we have upon one another. But when I think about showrunning and I think about how I get to have my hands in so many pots and I think about left brain, right brain, hmm. it's the best job in the world <laughs> for me. No, that's awesome. To, to touch on diversity for a second, what was sort of your perspective on um, sort of where Pachinko sits in like the ecosystem of, um, you know, streaming entertainment that we have? Yeah, I mean, for this show, we just said the best actors should be cast. The characters need to speak the language the characters speak. Um, that we were going to bring together a crew, an international crew that was a mix of um, the, from the U.S., from Japan, from Korea. It was in the spirit of really trying to bring the world together together. Um, when I pitched this, I said, even though this is a very specific Korean story, this is not a Korean show. It's not a Japanese show. And it's not an American show. That we really did feel this was a global show. Yeah. And that attitude filtered down to the way we made it as well. Did you have like a particular, I'm curious if you had like a moment maybe on set where sort of the global nature of it kind of hit home or you sort of, you know, had any kind of moment of like, ah, this is a group of completely disparate people coming together. Yeah. It was one of our final days of shooting in Korea. We were going to then hop over to Vancouver and half the crew would stay in Korea. And then we'll get a new crew in Vancouver because that's how it works with the tax incentives. And it was one of our last days. And you can tell that people are starting to get sad that it was ending, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling this in the air. And I was at lunch, we were in this big mess hall and I look around and I got very emotional looking at the various tables and seeing it wasn't just the Koreans who sat with the Koreans or the Japanese who sat with the Japanese, it was this mix. And people were translating for each other as friends and you saw all these hand gestures and you realize we make cultural differences too hard. We've complicated it, we really have. Because when you look at this room, that room, and you saw people coming together and just over food, right? And laughing or making fun of someone or, you know, venting. There's just that emotional, that universal language of emotions. And it was really just powerful to see. There's so much doubt that runs in you when you make anything, right? Mm -hmm. And there are those rare moments though, when you're behind the monitor, and you're watching something and you know, I have it. You're like, this is so going to work. And it's, you just know. And the scene in episode three, at the end of episode three, when Isak is proposing to Sunja in the Udon, Udon shop. I mean, I remember, I remember, it's like, I got this. This is done. We're, the scene works. It's so gratifying. It doesn't happen all the time. When it does happen, it means the world. Yeah, that's such like, it's, it's an incredible sequence. And then the episode ends and leaves you completely bereft. It's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I cry every time seeing it. Oh, and, and it speaks to sort of one thing that, that I, 
admire about the series is that it's willing and it's brave enough to sort of leave space um, for things to be unsaid or for, you know, a, a moment to pass. And I'm curious if that's something that you particularly wanted to bring uh, to this series or if that's something you, you feel is a part of your writing always. I'm not sure if it's a part of my writing because I don't, I hope not to fall into certain patterns in what I do. Hmm. It just felt those time jumps felt part of this story. Um, I wish that I had, I was able to break down exactly why I made all the choices or why we made all the choices. Sometimes it's just this instinctual thing of like, that's how this needs to be done. Yeah. Um, And that's how it felt for this. The writer's room was incredible. I had a group of very soulful, brilliant writers who came from many disciplines, many different backgrounds. Um, That was half Korean. Um, And to be able to talk story and characters with such people was so much fun. Every day felt like my brain was growing and growing and expanding. (laughs) And really the show, when people talk about the details, it starts from there and trickles down to every different department. Yeah, that, I, I mean, yes, that makes sense. And because you also have such a, a mix of perspectives, I imagine that that was really important in building the room. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you don't want everyone to think the same way. You want to be challenged. You want people to be like, wait a minute, I, I think I, I did think differently. Um, but it was a very respectful room. It was a very kind room. That's that's awesome. Do you think that like that sense of of kindness defines the show in some way, or do you feel like there's a particular, you know, sort of sort of tone or or feeling that that defines the show across all of its time spanning and jumping? Absolutely, I think, and I I, I would do a variation a variation on the word kind, and I think the terror is similarly reflective of this. These characters are so generous, Hmm. generous in spirit, generous in love, generous in just hopes and dreams. I think with the terror as well, when I think about those characters and just this brotherhood that they formed in this show, we focus more on a sisterhood. And it's just, those are the characters I love.